Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. An old-fashioned country doctor was forced to quit by the state. Her prescribing practices are cited as a reason. What do you think is going to happen to these 300 patients that she sees if they can't go to another doctor to get what they need? You know, they're going to go to the streets. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll talk about balancing pain, painkillers, and the needs of patients. We'll also dig into a new report about electric rates, and we'll visit the family of a man awaiting deportation. Also, fathers of two school shooting victims on reaching out to others in pain, and those who've caused it. We're so good on punishment, but we don't seem to have a good system at all for reparation or reconciliation or any of that. We'll remember a fire that tore across the main countryside 70 years ago, and we'll try to get to the bottom of a new scourge on suburban streets. Talking Turkey, next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky, and we're going to start this week with some big news on the energy front. A new academic report released in conjunction with a national environmental group says that New England electricity consumers paid billions of dollars more than necessary over a three-year period. The reason? Well, large utility companies created artificial gas shortages, according to the report. One of the big utilities named called the report a fabrication, but it's drawn concern from state officials. Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey says she is reviewing the report, and public utility regulators in Connecticut have opened an investigation. Fred Bever has our story. The report's findings stem from the complicated dynamics of gas and electricity markets. It says that on hundreds of occasions, gas distributors Avangrid and Eversource reserved a certain amount of natural gas pipeline capacity and then at the very end of the day decided not to use it. The lead author, Vanderbilt University economist Matthew Zaragoza Watkins, says that artificially constricted gas supplies on cold days when gas was in high demand particularly during the polar vortex four winters ago. They had reserved it like a table at a restaurant, and then that table sat empty all day long. And then at the last minute, they'd say, actually, we never needed that table anyway. So why does that matter? Well, it can make gas more scarce, which drives up its price. That raises the price of electricity fueled by natural gas, and that in turn makes non-gas-fired electricity from coal, oil, or renewables more competitive in the marketplace. So when Avangrid and Eversource withheld gas capacity, non-gas units throughout New England benefited. That's according to Zaragoza Watkins. When it's more expensive for gas-fired power plants to run, everybody earns higher revenues. And what that resulted in over the three-year span of our data was about a 20% higher price on average for electricity or about a $3.6 billion transfer from electricity customers to generators. This report was published earlier this year and is a complete fabrication. Tricia Modifica is a spokeswoman for Boston-based Eversource, who read from a prepared statement. She says the analysts 
don't understand gas and electricity markets. The pipeline capacity we reserve is done so to meet the needs of our customers and no other purpose. We do not engage in any behavior to artificially constrain capacity. Our focus and actions are driven by our responsibility to ensure our customers have enough gas because we can't run the risk that they're left out in the cold. A spokesman for Evangrid also says that company is following all rules and regulations. The report's authors and sponsor are defending their analysis. Environmental Defense Fund spokesman John Koifman says it raises important questions about whether New England's gas supply issues are or were as dire as they've been painted by would-be pipeline developers, including Eversource, who were pushing regulators to make electricity consumers pay for new gas pipelines. Nobody is arguing that New England doesn't have tight capacity right now. The question is, how tight is that capacity and what's the best way to meet it most quickly at the lowest cost? Several industry observers say they are perplexed by the report. Tony Buxton is a lobbyist for paper mills and other large industrial energy users in Maine, and he has worked to add gas pipeline infrastructure serving this region, including the now-shelved Kinder Morgan project. Buxton says the report's accuracy needs to be established, but he says it raises legitimate questions about the transparency and effectiveness of gas and electricity market operations. If it is correct that otherwise lawful behavior in New England has uh, increased the price of gas to consumers and thereby the price of electricity, then we need to be certain that that's the case and and to fight hard to fix it. Some state-level officials are already calling for new regulatory scrutiny. Representatives of the regional grid operator, ISO New England, and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission declined comments. The report's authors, meanwhile, say they soon will submit it to a scientific journal for peer review. That's Fred Bever of Maine Public Radio reporting. We've been following another story over the last three months, that of a Chelsea, Massachusetts man who remains behind bars after being arrested by federal immigration officials during a scheduled office visit. Francisco Rodriguez is awaiting potential deportation back to El Salvador, the country he fled more than 10 years ago. But as reporter Shannon Dooling tells us, life carries on for his family. There are homework assignments, meals to cook, and loads of laundry to be done. Francisco Rodriguez isn't just Melanie's dad. He's also a martial arts champion. And if you ask 10-year-old Melanie Rodriguez, her father knows just about every kind of martial art there is. Because he has the judo, karate, kempo karate, because they're two different things. Abuela, karate. Muchos trofeos. Francisco's mom, Jesus Rodriguez, everyone calls her Jessie, chimes in talking about all the trophies Francisco has won in competitions in Panama and throughout Central America. Melanie Rodriguez takes karate too. She's a purple belt, soon to be blue belt, and had just finished karate class when we meet up on a recent Saturday. She's wearing a comfy fleece sweatsuit with matching teal sneakers. She and her grandmother are driving to a store to buy supplies for a school history project. She speaks softly most of the time, but with a noticeable boost of energy when sharing stories about her father. Yeah, my dad is quicker than me in math, though. He'll divide very, like, in three seconds, just fast. 
When he tries to teach me, he does it slow so I could get it. So now I help my sister because my dad is not there right now and my sister needs help and like my dad rise me up. I need to rise my sister up too. At the store, Melanie Rodriguez leads the way. Her grandmother pushes the cart, holding a Dunkin' Donuts cup in her hand. She had a late evening last night, visiting her son at Suffolk County House of Corrections after she finished work. Melanie Rodriguez sneaks away around the corner, looking at some erasable pens, and her grandmother takes the opportunity to share a little about her visit. He's desperate. He's really desperate, she says. I tell him to have patience some and pray every day. His attorneys say they're still waiting to hear back from the Board of Immigration Appeals on a request to reopen his 2009 asylum case. He was denied asylum after entering the country illegally in 2006. Jesse Rodriguez says she worries about the impact all of this will have on her grandchildren, Melanie, six-year-old Jessica, and two-month-old Josue, who's never met his father. Psychologically, having a father in the house is, is necessary. Broken families can't function. There are times I can help with things, like today. When I have time, I'll wake up earlier and I'll walk the kids to school. But the 65-year-old says she also has to work. The Rodriguez family depends on her job packing produce. For the last several years, Francisco Rodriguez, who has no criminal record, has been working as a janitor at MIT. Federal immigration authorities did not consider him a deportation priority, but that changed this year. The government is opposing Rodriguez's appeal to reopen his asylum case and has kept him in detention as his case proceeds. After running a few errands, Melanie Rodriguez and her grandmother head to a nearby park. They sit down at a picnic bench. Melanie Rodriguez started the fifth grade this year. Um, it's okay because I do pay attention, but like I don't really have like very good relationships with a lot of kids in the school. So who do you who do you get to talk to about all of this? About all your feelings? Um, no one. Yeah, in school I don't really have no one. She folds her arms on the picnic bench and rests her head from time to time, staring off into the woods that sprawl out around her. She says things feel a little different now three months after that day back in July, when she stood up in front of a row of television cameras and pleaded with President Donald Trump to let her dad go. It feels more like lonely. It doesn't feel like, it feels like if there's nothing happening in life. It just feels all normal because we we do everything that we need to do, but we don't like, we don't, we don't spend time now with my dad, and it's a little bit more sad. She points out a walking trail nearby that her dad once took her on and asks her grandmother if they can explore it again now. We'll come back another time, her grandmother says. Shannon Dooley, reporting from WBUR. It's been a little more than two weeks since a gunman opened fire on a crowd of concertgoers in Las Vegas, leaving 58 people dead and 489 injured. While investigators search for a motive, the family members of those who were murdered, the husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, 
are just beginning a long and painful period of grief. WBUR's Anthony Brooks has this story of two fathers who know a lot about this kind of tragedy and grief and who turned their loss into action. This is a picture of my three children, James and Natalie and, and Daniel, hugging and smiling. When I met Mark Barden, the first thing he did was show me that picture. James, Natalie, and Daniel, 12, 10, and 6. They have big, wide smiles. And their dad says Daniel loved animals, even ants and earthworms. So much so that he and his wife, Jackie, called him the caretaker of all living things. Mark Barden recalls the cold December morning almost five years ago, when his family began its morning routine and he walked his oldest son, James, down the driveway to catch the early school bus. And I hear little footsteps behind me, and it's Daniel. And he was just out there in his little pajamas, put flip-flops on. I said, it's cold, what are you doing? He said, I want to come with you to the bus so I can hug James and tell him I love him. Six-year-old Daniel insisted on doing the same for his older sister, Natalie, when she left. Then it was his turn to catch his bus to school. Daniel and I enjoyed our little quiet alone time in, in that last hour, but we walked to the bus and I, and I hugged him and kissed him and told him I loved him. Not long after that came the texts and the phone calls about a lockdown at Daniel's school, the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. You know, as the morning wore on, that's when we learned what had happened. 6-7 Sandy Hook School. Callers indicating she thinks there's someone shooting in the building. And this sweet little boy, the caretaker of all living things, The light of happiness in our little family was among those 21st grade children who had been shot to death. The majority of those who died today were children. Uh, Beautiful little kids between the ages of 5 and 10 years old. You know, in those first weeks, my wife Jackie and I would be collapsed literally on the floor in a heap, just sobbing and crying. You know, both of us whispering to each other, I just want to die. And James and Natalie would come find us, and they'd wrap their arms around us and and hold us and kind of bring us strength, which is kind of the reverse what you might think. It's easy to understand such grief, but Greg Gibson and his wife Annie had lived it. Their son Galen was murdered on the same day exactly 20 years earlier, in the same way as Daniel Barden. Galen Gibson attended Simons Rock College in western Massachusetts and was among two people shot dead by a fellow student armed with a semi-automatic rifle. So on that cold December day of the Sandy Hook massacre, Greg Gibson, his wife, and two surviving children were at their home in Gloucester remembering their son and brother. For years in the anniversary of Galen's death, December 14th, the whole family would set up a little Christmas tree on his grave. And I know it sounds like a mournful, sad thing, but actually it's joyous in a way. I mean, it's something the whole family still gets to do. That includes Galen. But on that day, they heard the terrible news about Sandy Hook. And right away, our hearts flew to them because we knew what that moment was and we knew what the next years would be like in some sense. So Greg Gibson reached out to the Sandy Hook families. He drove down to Newtown and ended up talking with Mark Barden, who remembers that first meeting. I just remember that being therapeutic for me. I remember coming out of that with a a sense of lift. And I felt here as somebody who didn't suffer this particular tragedy, but can absolutely relate. And I just remember a lot of comfort in that. As they talked, the two men discovered a remarkable, maybe spooky, but certainly sad coincidence. Not only did their sons die on the same calendar day, 
they also shared the same birthday, September 27th. Which is just incredibly, amazingly coincidental. When you consider they both died the same way, violently, prematurely, in a hail of gunfire in a school, what does that tell you about our society, especially now as we sit here contemplating what happened in Las Vegas? People, (laughs) they're very happy to talk about what a weird coincidence it is that two people can be born and shot on the same day 20 years apart. But Greg Gibson says it's important to look beyond that weird coincidence. They're so much more interested in that than in how we can stop this from happening again. That's the mystery to me. The murder of his son sent Greg Gibson on a long journey that began with grief and rage. Then he investigated what happened to his son and why, and wrote a book about it, Gone Boy. He set up the Galen Gibson Fund to help survivors of gun violence and to push for stronger gun safety laws, which might have prevented his son's killer, Wayne Lowe, from purchasing the rifle at a local gun store and ordering high-capacity magazines through the mail. Lowe is carrying more than 200 rounds and shot six people, killing two of them, including Galen. It was only because his gun jammed repeatedly that he didn't kill many more. Wayne Lowe was sent to prison for life. Then seven years after his shooting rampage, he wrote to Greg Gibson, expressing regret for what he did. Lowe even made a contribution to the Galen Gibson Fund. So Greg Gibson began a correspondence with him. We're so good on punishment, but we don't seem to have a good system at all for reparation or reconciliation or any of that. I mean, look at this kid. He's in jail. He's figured out on his own how to at least make some token effort to repay what he's done. Is that a spiritual awakening? Yeah, I mean, maybe. Or maybe it's just a con, Gibson says. Either way, he has agreed to meet Wayne Lowe face-to-face almost 25 years after Lowe murdered Galen. Greg Gibson says he doesn't know what to expect, but he says both he and his son's killer have something to say about America's problem with guns. He said to me so many times, you know, the worst aspect of this whole thing was how easy it was. When I was as disturbed as I was or that I thought I needed to kill people, I could still walk into a gun store and buy a gun and order ammunition and modify my gun. The horror of it was the ease with which all this happened. So that's a powerful message. Back in Newtown, Connecticut, Mark Barden is on a similar path. The grief over Daniel's death is still fresh, but like Greg Gibson, he too is trying to reduce gun deaths. I'm in a position and I have an opportunity to to affect change that could prevent this from happening to other people. I can't not do that. Mark Barden co-founded Sandy Hook Promise, which teaches educators and parents to recognize when someone might be on the verge of using a gun to harm others or themselves. The warning signs are often visible. Isolation anger, a fascination with guns, as they were with Wayne Lowe and Adam Lanza, the Sandy Hook killer. Mark Barden is proud that the program has trained more than two million people in all 50 states, but it pains him that the killings continue, as they did in Las Vegas this month. It brings back all kinds of horrible memories of the days following the the massacre that took the life of my little Daniel. And I've used the word defeated in in conversations this week with people. But I do know that the work that we are doing, that we have stopped school shootings uh, as a direct result of our work. And all I can promise is that I will continue to honor my little Daniel. Almost since the moment Galen was killed, it's been my constant 
meditation and focus. Again, Greg Gibson. To take this terrible thing and find some good in it. Because if we can't and it drags us down, it wins. And that's not, you know, it's not supportable. Just out of respect to Galen or anybody who's died in this manner. Greg Gibson compares America's gun problem to cancer, a disease that will take a long time to beat. Twenty years after the murder of his son, Galen, five years after the murder of Daniel Barden, and a little more than two weeks after Las Vegas, the country is still looking for a cure. After the story was reported, Greg Gibson did meet face-to-face with his son's killer. The meeting was recorded by the public radio project StoryCorps. Gibson says the time he spent with Wayne Lowe was productive, and the two planned to keep working together. Coming up, pain, prescriptions, and the needs of patients. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund. Supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. There's a doctor in New London, New Hampshire, who ended her decades-long practice this month. She's nearly 85, but her retirement is not voluntary. She says she was forced to shut down her practice by a system that no longer values her brand of patient-centered medicine. But the New Hampshire Board of Medicine has a different take. They challenged her medical decision-making and other aspects of her work. One practice that may be under scrutiny, prescribing opioid painkillers to many of her patients. New Hampshire Public Radio's Brita Green reports. Dr. Anna Kanabka's medical office sits just across the driveway from her house. Her black, fluffy dog often waits outside, greeting cars as they drive up. Kanabka's place is tucked along the shore of Pleasant Lake in New London, New Hampshire. There's no cell service, no Wi-Fi. I spent nearly five hours there the week before last, talking with Kanabka and her patients as they filed in and out. Who's next? Matt Reynolds came in from Claremont on Thursday morning. At 33 years old, he explains he's seen a world of pain. He was attacked about a decade ago on the street, stabbed 18 times, he says. He also has a serious spine disease and shattered his hand in a workplace accident a couple years ago. Honestly, if it wasn't for Ms. Kanapka and the things that she's done to help me get where I am today, then I don't feel that I would be able to support my family. Before he saw her, he says he visited every major hospital in the Upper Valley without success. I've seen 30, 40 different professionals, and their answers are all the same. Well, short of surgery, there's nothing we can do. He says Kanapka's instead worked with him intensely, gotten to the root of his interconnected aches and pains, and helped him avoid surgery with different therapies, supplements, and medications. I heard these kinds of stories over and over again. Kanapka listens and spends time with you, her patients say. She learns your family history, your physical and mental state. She doesn't just rush you out the door with a prescription. 
This is really Dr. Konopka speaking. The doctor is short, with a mop of white hair, and she's quick to smile. This week, she wears a white polka dot vest, white pants, white shoes. She's originally from Poland. She was first licensed in New Hampshire in the 60s. And how are you doing? She says she knows she's unique, that the medical system in this country is changing, and she's refusing to change with it. Even the last year, a secretary of medical society told me that I'm disappearing species. I said, I know that. <laughs> She says she doesn't record anything electronically. Medical history, prescription records, it's all on paper. She says she finally caved and got a computer earlier this year, but it sits in her kitchen. She can't figure out how to use it. And it may not come as a surprise that she doesn't trust the medical skills of most doctors nowadays. They almost they don't see the patient faces. They don't remember the patient. That's it. They are on computers. And then, according to the guidelines, they are prescribing medication for their patients. If it's good medications or bad medications, they prescribe because it's guidelines. To me, this is not medicine. She says she stopped accepting insurance several years ago because she felt pressured by the insurance companies to adopt electronic systems and sign complicated financial contracts. So she charges a flat fee, $50, for an office visit. But now everything is changing. Last month, Kanapka agreed to voluntarily surrender her license to settle allegations from the New Hampshire Board of Medicine. The board cites her record-keeping, prescribing practices, and medical decision-making. They say confidentiality rules limit them from offering more detail. Regardless, these are serious allegations, but the doctor's patients seem more upset at the board than her. And those I spoke with, they're not taking it lightly. She's changed my world, and I'm terrified. I am absolutely terrified. Nancy Muskelly came in on Monday morning. She says before she started seeing Kanapka a couple years ago, she was using a walker or a cane to get around. Now, with Kanapka's help, she can walk again, freely. She says she's cut her pill count to a quarter of what it was. She's scared if she has to go to other doctors, her health will again take a turn for the worse. She just, she listens to you. You know, she really does listen to you. For her part, Kanapka says she's always been careful to follow the law and keep detailed records. She's never been sued for malpractice in New Hampshire. She's agreed to surrender her license, but disputes the allegations and says she's done nothing wrong. Talking with her patients, though, I noticed another trend. Many suffer from chronic pain, say they were referred to Kanapka by friends, word of mouth, and say they see her about once a month. Then some of them, like Muskelly, the woman who was using a walker before seeing the doctor, would say things like this. What do you think is going to happen to these 300 patients that she sees on a month? I can guarantee you half of them now, if whatever they are on, if they can't go to another doctor to get what they need, you know, they're going to go to the streets. It turns out many of the doctor's patients, more than half, she says, are on opioids to manage chronic pain. Those patients told me Kanapka is a savior in part because so few doctors nowadays will take them and keep them on the drugs. Kanapka says this problem of people not knowing where to go, it's bad. She had decided this spring she wouldn't take any new opioid patients, but she was overloaded with calls from people begging her to take them on. In some cases, when they told her they'd have to turn to the street, she let them in. The young people, you know, they are dying, you know. I, I wanted to save them. 
She says she's not overprescribing and, in fact, is often able to reduce a patient's dosage. And while, again, the medical board has disclosed only the broad strokes of their allegations, when asked specifically about it, Kanabka said her opioid prescribing practices are part of the complaints. For one thing, in New Hampshire, physicians are required to look up patients in an online system when they're prescribing opioids. It helps doctors know when a patient may be abusing the drugs. Kanapka says she hasn't been using it. With the extent of the opioid crisis across the country, physicians are under increasing pressure around their prescribing practice. I talked with some doctors who say it's leading to unintended consequences, with some chronic pain patients being cut off from the drugs. For the patients I met in Kanapka's office, the system has become scary and exhausting. Other doctors won't even see me. I've called 30 doctors this week, 30 doctors, and they said, no, we do not take narcotic patients. Jennifer Clark's been seeing Kanapka for about six years. In exasperation, she turns her back to me and lifts up her shirt, shows me the scar running up and down her spine. She was in a bad car accident in the 90s. She's adamant that she doesn't abuse the drugs. In fact, she says Kanapka's taken her down to half the dose that other doctors had prescribed. I have perfect records and nothing wrong in my records. And they still say, no, we do not take narcotics. So where am I supposed to go? Kanapka says she's fighting the medical board's decision. She's filed for an injunction in Merrimack County Superior Court and says she's left information for the governor, asking him to step in as well. That's Brita Green reporting. Last month, a new health care clinic opened its doors in Burlington, Vermont. It's not your normal doctor's office, though. Canacare Docs specializes in one very specific service. And as the company's name might imply, it's out to reshape the medical cannabis landscape in the Green Mountain State. Vermont Public Radio's Peter Hirschfeld has more. I'm Marta Downing. Nice to meet you. Welcome to Canacare Docs. We just acquired this clinic. Marta Downing is the Chief Operating Officer at Canacare Docs, and this particular clinic is located on the third floor of a brick office building about 15 miles outside Boston. It's Canacare's 10th site in Massachusetts, but it's not the company's latest addition. That designation belongs to a new clinic in downtown Burlington that opened its doors to patients about two weeks ago. And Downing says Canacare plans to do in Vermont what it's already done in seven other states, help as many people as possible gain access to legal medical marijuana. Canacare is not looking to keep people out of medical marijuana programs. We're looking to get people into your state medical marijuana programs. Vermont's program has been around for more than a decade, but until recently, eligibility was restricted to patients with a relatively short list of severe medical conditions. That all changed when lawmakers added chronic pain to the list. Chronic pain is an ambiguous medical definition, and perhaps because of that, it accounts for about 70% of all medical marijuana cards issued nationally. Downing says Canacare now sees potential for growth in Vermont. I mean, we have this sort of artificial barrier where you need a medical marijuana card to get safe legal access if, if you want to use cannabis. Canacare Docs has seen that the patients really need, or the people who want to use cannabis legally, they really need help navigating how to do that. Here's what your visit to Canacare might look like. Downing says the comprehensiveness of the physical exam varies depending on the Canacare clinician you see. But according to the company's website, the exam will likely consist of having your vital signs taken and going over your paperwork. All of this will cost you a flat fee of 210 bucks, but you get 75% of your money back if Canacare doesn't successfully enroll you in the medical marijuana registry. Downing's quest to connect more Vermonters with medical cannabis certificates is making some people uncomfortable. My concern would be that they would be getting a lot less 
than in terms of careful, thoughtful, thorough medical care than if they went to their family physician or a specialist. Dr. Simha Ravan is the Senior Medical Director at the Brattleboro Retreat. She's also a Clinical Assistant Professor in the Division of Law and Psychiatry at Yale Medical School, and she serves on the Vermont Board of Medical Practices Medical Marijuana Appeals Board. Ravan says the doctor-patient relationship is foremost when it comes to determining whether medical marijuana is appropriate as a treatment. And Ravin says this kind of approach seems to sidestep that relationship. They're not seeing someone who knows their history. South Burlington Representative Ann Pugh helped write Vermont's medical marijuana law, and she says the legislature took great pains to keep it from becoming a de facto route to legalized recreational use. Pugh says lawmakers were particularly wary of the medical marijuana outcomes in places like California and Colorado, where companies with names like 420MD made it so just about anyone who wanted a medical marijuana card could pop into a clinic and get one. So we require a doctor-patient relationship, and that's defined by a period of time. A three-month relationship, to be exact, but Downing says Canacare has got that part covered. Under the Canacare model, your relationship with your provider begins the day you arrive for your consultation. Downing says a second visit three months later satisfies the Vermont requirement, and that second visit could soon be even more convenient. We are looking at, at doing that second visit virtually, uh, to be honest, that's not a relationship in my mind. That's Representative Ann Pugh again, but some marijuana advocates say Canacare could fill a badly needed role in Vermont. Laura Subin is the director of the Vermont Coalition to Regulate Marijuana. The group is helping lead the push for outright legalization in Vermont. I caught up with her during a break at a recent meeting of the Vermont Marijuana Advisory Commission. Subin says Vermonters need help gaining access. Individual physicians are members of associations that have taken public positions against marijuana legalization. And even though it's legal under Vermont's medical law, they're still afraid to be associated with the issue. Not so with the lone certified nurse practitioner who's now seeing patients at the Canacare Clinic on Pine Street. Canacare has had some regulatory pitfalls in other states. Last June, Massachusetts regulators suspended the medical license of the company's medical director. The board alleged that he let nurse practitioners use his ID to enroll patients in the registry. His license was reinstated three months later, and he was cleared of wrongdoing. Downing is not apologetic about her company's mission, and she's a true believer in the therapeutic benefits of marijuana. Canacare, for example, works with patients at a residential facility for people with the degenerative condition ALS. You know, it helps them enjoy their movie at night. I'm not really sure that's a problem. Apparently, cannabis is not going to cure ALS just yet, but if it makes watching your movie a little bit more fun, I'm down with that. Downing says Canacare aims to be responsible for 50% of all medical marijuana certificates issued in the states it operates in. There are already nearly 5,000 patients on the registry here in Vermont. That's a lot of patients to get in the door. And Downing says she's down with that. That's Peter Hirschfeld from VPR reporting. We should mention that in addition to Massachusetts and Maine, Canacare Docs has an office in Connecticut and is planning to open one in Manchester, New Hampshire. Coming up, as we watch California deal with deadly wildfires, we remember the blaze that burned Maine 70 years ago. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. 
Fast-moving wildfires in Northern California have destroyed thousands of homes and taken more than 40 lives. 70 years ago, this same time of year, wildfires burned over hundreds of miles of Maine. These fires wiped out towns and forever changed the landscape. New England Public Radio's Jill Coffin reports. A painting that hangs inside the front hallway of a small museum in the center of Kennebunk, Maine, shows a night sky in the distance filled with fire. Town historian Steve Spofford says it's an accurate depiction of the 1947 fires that swept around the state. You could hear the roar of the fire, and of course, she depicts it well here. Simultaneous fires were raging out of control along the coast from Portland to Acadia and inland. And the firehouse, which was just around the corner from us here, was the headquarters for the uh, main forest service and for the firefighting to tell people that were coming in from all over where they needed to go to fight the fire. In Kennebunkport on Goose Rocks Beach, a beautiful ocean inlet a few miles from town, three generations of Spofford family members escaped with their lives, including 70-year-old great-aunt Olive Emmons, who at first refused to leave her home because it was hard to imagine how the fires could touch her when she lived right on the water, next to a river and the ocean. She left the morning of the fire. By 6 o'clock that night, the fire had rolled into Goose Rocks and completely destroyed it. Over 10 days, more than 200,000 acres of Maine burned, including about half the acreage of Acadia National Park. 2,500 people were left homeless. Nine towns were gone. Remarkably, Spofford says, only 15 people died. In the coastal areas, a lot of people had already left for the winter. If this had happened in July or August, there would have been more death. Maine was having a serious drought in the months leading up to October 1947. No one was unduly alarmed. The crops were good, the summer tourism season had been great, and everyone assumed the autumn rains would come just like they did every year. Then, in the first week of that October, the Maine Forest Service began to get calls about some small fires not far from Kennebunk in York and Cumberland counties. They were put out. Other small fires were reported. And months of drought made tinder out of a state that was and still is almost 90% forest. An interview with Charlotte Stewart of Bar Harbor, who was one of the telephone operators who stayed in town. In the late 1970s, historian Joyce Butler conducted interviews with fire survivors. The recordings are at the University of Maine in Orono. There could have been the light shining on a bottle. Butler's book, Wild Fire Loose, The Week Maine Burned, is seen as the definitive account of the 1947 fires. In this interview, Charlotte Stewart describes to Butler what she saw. Suddenly erupted from the ground. And everybody thought, well, just a forest fire, you know, but the trees were so dry that it just, there was no stopping it. And the fire department at that time was not um, equal to it. They did not know how to handle underground fires. They've learned since, believe me. The fire would seem to die down, Stewart goes on to say. Then it would cross the road and pop up somewhere else. And then a live cinder hit the roof of her brother-in-law's dairy barn. And my brother was working with him at the time, and he... Everybody yelled, one for your lives. The barn burnt to the ground. Butler's book inspired popular novelist Anita Shreve to write her most recent novel, The Stars Are Fire. Shreve spoke to New Hampshire Public Radio. There was a detail that stuck in my mind about how some of the women and men had to go into the sea to save themselves. And of course the scary part, all the rats that were running 
to get to the ocean. And they came under the blankets with them as they were sitting in the surf. In his car, Steve Spofford drives around Goose Rock's beach, pointing out where houses used to be. Spofford's mother-in-law gave him Shreve's book. He hasn't read it yet. With the anniversary and a lot of speaking engagements this month, he doesn't want to mix up fact with fiction. But if you do see an older house, you know that the family probably stayed with it and tried to save it. When you look around this picturesque town, it's hard to imagine so much fear and loss, and then years of people rebuilding their lives and cleaning up the debris, which is how Spofford, born about 20 years after the fires, spent some of his youth. Where this stake is right there, my father owned all this land to the right. What's grown up in place of the acres of main pine that burned down to ash are mostly birch and aspen trees. And I don't know if we can see anything. Spofford pulls over and he spends a few moments looking through the windshield and then he gets out of the car. We're in luck. That is a piece of the tree. He's found some treasure, a piece of wood left over from the 1947 fires. It goes into the trunk of his car, another artifact for the museum. Steve Spofford says the fires could happen again like they do out west. And he said that weeks before the deadliest fire in California's history began, not that far from the Pacific Ocean. That story is from New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman. Go to nextnewengland.org if you want to see some amazing pictures of what the fire in Maine looked like. And now for something completely different. A woman called this morning, approximately 6.30, saying she was attacked. All right, just stay put around that area, okay? Pia's going to walk back from Beaconsfield. Because they just attack anything that moves. Okay. I mean, I'm afraid to put my 10-month-old outside. I walk with a big umbrella now because I kind of needed something to keep them at bay. And one of them was literally flying up in my face trying to get me with the claws. And I hit it as hard as I could with this umbrella that's like a solid stick. And it went down and came right back up at me. One of them actually flapped his wings, jumped off the ground, and drop kicked me with both of his feet. Those are residents of Brookline in Foxborough, Massachusetts, you just heard. This menace that's plaguing the Boston metro area? Wild turkeys. In this cell phone video, a man is running as two turkeys chase him down the sidewalk. Boston city officials say they received 60 turkey-related complaints last year. But not everyone's upset by the animals. Some find them amusing, or they simply tolerate them, like Brookline's Suzette Abbott. Well, you know, they just go by. The only thing I don't want them to do is peck it, you know, scratch up my garden. Other than that, it doesn't matter to me particularly what they do. To find out why we're seeing this influx of wild turkeys in urban and suburban areas and what makes some of them so aggressive, we called David Scarpitti. He's the wild turkey and upland game biologist for the Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife. Dave, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. So we've been seeing a lot of videos of wild turkeys disturbing people in urban and suburban neighborhoods. And I was remembering a time just a few months ago, I was in Cambridge, right in the middle of Central Square, and I saw a turkey walking down the middle of the street, and I thought, well, that's odd. But then the more I'm reading about this, Dave, it seems as though, I don't know, there's a problem with urban wild turkeys. Are, are, should we be concerned? There's certainly a lot of turkeys in suburban and urban areas. Um, it's something that over the past probably decade that we've seen an increasing trend in, in the abundance of turkeys and really all wildlife within those areas, um, you know, turkeys, uh, coyotes, fisher, uh, lots of wildlife are becoming 
extremely abundant in suburban and urban areas, and it's it's all really a consequence of food, and these animals are finding lots of good food resources in those areas, and that's why we see them there. Are wild turkeys actually native to this, this part of the world? Yeah, so historically wild turkeys would have been found all throughout New England. Um, they were certainly here in Massachusetts. Turkeys were extirpated from the state. There were essentially no turkeys left in the state uh, by about the mid-1850s. And through conservation efforts with the Division of Fisheries and Wildlife, turkeys were restored to the state. That reintroduction has gone extremely well. We're now um, just 40-ish years after that, and turkeys occupy literally every town in the Commonwealth, uh, the one exception being the island of Nantucket. Did, did it go almost too well? I mean, are, are, are we having a problem of too many turkeys now in Massachusetts? Yeah, I don't know that um, we ever would have speculated that turkeys would have been so successful in eastern Massachusetts, but in hindsight, I don't think it's unreasonable. Turkeys are, are, are a generalist species. They can live in a variety of habitat where they find food. They're, they're able to survive and reproduce. And you say they've been finding food, obviously, in places where there are more people. What sorts of things are they complaining about turkeys doing in their neighborhoods? Sure. So, so we get a, a huge range of, of issues with turkeys being in these suburban and urban areas, um, from just general nuisance complaints of noise, um, scratching up people's lawns, getting into gardens, um, to the other end of the spectrum, which uh, in certain seasons and in certain situations, we do have situations with turkeys where they're acting in an aggressive manner towards people, towards vehicles, um, pecking at windows, uh, and a lot of that behavior is, um, it, it's, it's based in their biology, but it's sort of an artifact of them becoming very, very comfortable living in and amongst humans. And that's, again, goes back to a directly a consequence of, uh, of where they're finding food and that those food sources just tend to be people. You know, people are feeding them, um, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. And over time, what happens is the, uh, you know, turkeys tend to just lose their fear of humans, um, what are typically natural behaviors of turkeys acting aggressively towards each other, pecking, um, vying for their sort of social position within a flock. After, uh, you know, years of, of, of living amongst humans, they don't have that fear of them anymore. And, and so that behavior tends to be acted out towards humans oftentimes. What's interesting, though, is there are other species that you've said um, that have become more prominent in urban and suburban areas all across New England. Bears, we certainly have a lot of complaints about. And, of course, there are deer everywhere. But with very few exceptions, um, if you see a bear, it's probably going to run away from you first. If you see a deer, it's probably going to run away from you first. But there's all these instances of of turkeys really acting aggressively, not just toward big people, but but big vehicles. I mean, what's different about a turkey in in a bear or a deer? You know, a good chunk of it is just the biology of the animal and the social structure that turkeys live in. So turkeys, you know, are, are, are social animals. They live in flocks, and, and just by by biology, by ecology, what, what they're wired to do is to um, establish their place within that flock, within that social hierarchy. Biology of bears is different, though I'd argue that with bears, when they're being fed the way that turkeys are, we do have a lot of situations where bears tend to start losing their fear of humans and, and can act... Um, uh, in a concerning manner, if they're pr- being provided with a with an awful lot of food, we've seen it with bears, we've seen it with coyotes. You know, turkeys are probably the most common thing, because I think turkeys too, they're just to most people's eye, they're relatively benign on the landscape. When people start seeing turkeys in a neighborhood, it might be a novel observation. They think it's interesting, and they don't recognize that over time that behavior can break down. 
and then when it does, it's it's quite surprising and alarming. So, so let's say that someone in Brookline gives you a call at the Mass Division of Fisheries and Wildlife and says, there's turkeys that are digging up my garden, they're acting aggressively, they're, they're bothering me, they're keeping me up. What do you guys do? The first thing we do in every single situation is if they're feeding birds, if they have bird feeders in the yard, or if they're intentionally feeding turkeys, uh, we, we try to compel them to stop. Um, there's some, some ways to kind of deter the presence of turkeys, whether it's just through some, some mild hazing or harassing or through some visual deterrence, maybe uh, suggesting that they use some shiny objects that tend to, to cause un, uneasiness in, in turkeys. And some of that can be successful or not. It just kind of depends on the level of habituation that the turkeys have in that area, how long they've been being fed or how long they've been accustomed to being around people. How, how different is the turkey that's running down a, a street in the Fenway than a turkey that I might have on my Thanksgiving table? I mean, are they, are they pretty similar or are they, are they really, really different biologically? The turkey that's on your table on Thanksgiving uh, is just a domesticated version of it. So it's been, you know, through, through repeated breedings, it's bred to be a little bit bigger, a little bit plumper. Um, but fundamentally, you know, they're, they're, they're basically the same animal. They can interbreed extremely well. We do see that um, with the popularity of people raising, you know, backyard chickens and backyard turkeys. We do start to see now in some areas um, hybrid wild and domestic turkeys. So, um, so they're extremely similar. Dave Scarpides, wild turkey and upland game biologist for the Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife. Dave, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Sure, my pleasure. We've posted some of our favorite turkey encounter videos on our website, and there are a lot of them, at nexttonewengland.org. Have you run into wild turkeys in your neighborhood? Well, share your footage with us. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. If you enjoyed this week's show, there's something you can do to help more people find out about Next. Head to Apple Podcasts on your phone or computer and just leave us a rating or review. We appreciate it. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Melville Charitable Trust and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR 